Hello and welcome to The Real Heroes of E-Commerce. I'm your host, Jason, and today we have Qasem Aslam on, and he is the founder and CEO of one of the top Google ad agencies, Solutions8. Instead of the usual talk around ad campaigns and ad optimizations, we go down a bit of a rabbit hole around Google and how much it knows about us and how it is able to use that in marketing to us. Also, we talk about what brands should think about going into 2023, around content and how to balance quality versus quantity. This was an unexpected but fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy. If you are listening on Apple or Spotify, be sure to go to Substack and look up the real heroes of e-commerce and subscribe to learn more about customer psychology. All right, let's get to it. Kasim, welcome to the show. Jason, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate you. So you have had a pretty busy fall this year. Um, with some speaking gigs, haven't you? Yeah, I uh, I'm trying to be nerd famous, so I run around. I I have that sad, pathetic personality that really enjoys attention, mm-hmm. and it's sad because the people that are on stage are not like they're because they're the most competent. They're the most competent people who are also willing to subject themselves to whatever level of pain and torture is required to be in that position so that they can hear themselves speak. Like that's the <laughs> matrix that you're being exposed to. So, and I did, I think that's true of all speakers. Like you'll notice that there's always like that, the reluctant hero who says that they're an introvert and they make it on stage because they want to help people. And I don't buy that for a fraction of a second. I think if you're out there and you're up there, you just kind of, you like being above, you know what I mean? You like the spotlight and um, I don't know. I'm willing to admit it. That's funny. Yeah, no, I think the same thing. People are like, oh, I don't really want to say this, but they really want to say this. But they, yeah, they really, yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so you are supposedly into marketing. <laughs> so they tell me, yeah, I'm just a charlatan, man. I, you know, I heard Ryan Dice say one time, he's like, I play a marketer on TV. And mm-hmm. I was like, that that describes really what, like, I haven't run a Google ads campaign in years. You know, I own, I own the top rated Google ads agency on the planet. And like, if I tried to sit here right now with you and set up conversion tracking, I'd need to be slacking members of my team. And mm-hmm. I think that's what happens with anything. Like, as you grow, you know, we've got, I've got 80 employees. Like you, everybody just ends up becoming a banker and a recruiter. Mm-hmm. And the actual process of the business gets, gets delegated to far more intelligent, competent people. So I don't know if I am a marketer anymore as much as I'm just like an entrepreneur who have, happens to own a marketing company. Very good. Um, I guess that's one way to do it. Yeah. Well, then let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. When you were a marketer, um, when did you get into that? So here's, I've got a thesis on this. You ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'd actually really welcome you to challenge me here. Okay. Because every marketer that you know is just a failed entrepreneur. <laughs> every, all, dude, all of them, like all of them, everybody owns a marketing agency, every freelance marketer. And we all went and tried something else, sucked at that. But the marketing piece of that something else actually kind of like it, it was a little sticky mm-hmm. um, and we clung to it. So I had a whole collection of failed endeavors and um, digital marketing was all that, all that was left. I started Solutions 8, um, the genesis of of that organization was a was a software development firm called KPO Global, mm-hmm. and I was building outsourced enterprise level software, and I was horrible at it. I sucked, and you know that that failed and crashed and burned, and I was destitute and financially despondent, and 
it just kind of snowballed into me landing face first into marketing. And it's not a good hero story, man. I wish I had a better one for you. <laughs> but yeah, it was just it was just sucking at life. Something we've all been through. Yeah. Um, all right, then well, how did you how'd you land on Google Ads? I didn't. My business partner did. So uh, Solutions 8 was called Solutions 8 because we had eight core service offerings because I'm an idiot. So we I was actually going to ask about that. Yeah. About Solutions 8 because I thought there's Mute 6, there's Solution 8. Tier 11, these- right. <laughs> yeah, we just keep topping each other. Um, Google Plexian. Uh, I, we had eight service offerings. So we were doing social media and video and content and emails and web and PPC and, 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 and I just thought I could be good at everything. So the whole pitch was your entire marketing department for less than the cost of a full-time employee. And, um, and I ran that, ran that agency that way for quite some time. You know, I had a full-time videographer on staff. We had a green screen studio. We were doing a lot of local agency work. Um, and I ended up bringing on, he was an employee at the time. He's my business partner now. And he's the one that identified, he's like, dude, everybody who's successful with us is successful with Google first, which makes Mm -hmm. sense because what you're doing is you're taking your client, you're suiting them up, handing them a sword, throwing them in the Coliseum and seeing whether or not they can survive with all their competitors. You know, like, do you have an offer that works? Do you have pricing that's viable? Do you answer your phone? Do people actually like your thing? The nice thing about Google ads is it's it's the extreme bottom of the funnel. So Mm -hmm. I put you at the bottom of the funnel and I, I see if that works and then and then if it does then we then we can move up the funnel and, and that was our offering for a long time we called it the bottom up funnel um so we started using google ads just as a litmus test to see whether or not a client was even worth investing in because for an agency if you bring on a client and they don't work that costs you money mm-hmm. you know i mean retention is a big 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 problem in the agency world if you're doing it right and so google ads at the at its outset was just this thing that we were using to see whether or not we wanted to continue the relationship and we ended up getting so good at it that we just stayed there. We niched down there. And I was dragged along kicking and screaming like the miserable failure that I am. I was like, there's no way we're going to niche down just into Google ads. It's too commoditized of a service offering. You know, once people in India get good at stuff, you can't offer it here, mm-hmm. right? Because they can afford to work for literal nothing uh, in, in comparative analysis. And I'm not, I'm not being dismissive or maybe I am, but I'm not trying to be a regionalist, but it's just true. Like you have somebody who can experience a 10x quality of life on you know a third of what it is I would need to charge in order to to be parapasu. And it feels damn near impossible to compete. And so why on earth would I get into a commoditized ecosystem like Google Ads? But I ended up being proved dramatically wrong there, which is was, something I've gotten really good used why to. Why do you think that happened? Or why do you think that people were not viewing this as a commodity and as something that pay a premium for? Um it's weird, man. This is a bit of a soapbox. <laughs> Good. We are, we're the best and we actually invested. Here's the other thing is it's not hard to be the best. You just, it's just time. And it wasn't me. It was my business partner that really cracked the code on Google ads, really dug deep, really figured out everybody else who runs Google. They take a weekend course, they go get certified in skills shop. And then now they're, they're Google ads certified. And if you want to be, you know, if you want to be the best at literally anything, all the competition is fighting to be mediocre. And so stepping up and being the best and planting a flag on the ground and saying like, I'm going to be the most competent person, entity, agency, freelancer, whatever, in this particular realm or proficiency, that's actually unique. Mm -hmm. It's unique. And um, that's where commoditization ends is when you're the best. It's only commoditized if you're doing what everybody else is doing. But if you're really willing to dive deep, and the only way you can do that is to, to niche down. 
Mm-hmm. Like that that's I think that's a literal truth. I think that's you can't be the best at multiple things. I think you have to choose like, oh, I'm gonna be the best email deliverability specialist in the world. And then you hear that and you're like, holy shit, like, do I want to get into email deliverability? No, that sounds like a freaking nightmare from hell. But what if I was the best in the world? Like all of a sudden, you know, that's 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 the type of business that would be a category kingmaker across every level of analysis, provide the type of access, strategic partnerships, relationships that, you know, would be truly unparalleled. Pick a topic, you know, I mean, from like the the new bright, shiny objects like TikTok advertising to like the old, I mean, dude, I'll say direct mail and snail mail. Imagine if you're the best direct mail expert in the world. And now it doesn't matter what it is you've niched down into. There's always room for profitability at the top, at the precipice, at the at the top of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I didn't do that. My business partner was the one that was the best. I just lucked out at having him as a business partner. So, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting to watch. And, and now that I've seen it, and now that I'm in that circle and I'm kind of exposed to it, um, it's crazy how few people set out to comply with that mandate. You know, like regardless of what world you're in, everybody's trying to not be the best. They're all trying to get by, like they're trying to get the most for the least. That's the least amount of output I can provide. Um, And, and I don't know, man, like if you really plant your flag in the ground and just say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the best CRO expert for e-commerce stores in the world. And the more you niche down, the better it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just the best CRO guy. It's the best CRO guy or gal for e-com specifically for Shopify in consumables. You know what I mean? Like bam, 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 bam. That is the most niche agency I just described. But think about that agency. There's nobody in the consumable space that wouldn't use them. And they could charge whatever they wanted because they know that their lift, it's it's a it's a leverageable skill. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I just soapboxed way too much there, dude. I'm sorry. No, that's good. I, I mean, I did notice that a couple of years ago when Shopify really got popular, everyone kind of shifted to I am a quote unquote Shopify agency, Shopify yep. marketing agency. And that's like you said, you're kind of aiming for the middle on that, trying to get the most, you know, merchants out there to to recognize that who you are. What a good way to put that, aiming for the middle. I feel like everybody's aiming for the middle. Well, I know you haven't done any Google ad campaigns in a while, but how has Google ads in general changed over the years? Dude, it's crazy. Uh, Google rolled out something in November 2021 called Performance Max, which is, it's the biggest paradigm shift in the world of media buying I've ever seen in my entire life. Media I've buying, heard a lot about it. It's unreal. It's unreal. It's weird. The machines won. AI driven marketing won. Machine driven marketing won. And you would have thought that there would be this moment, this event horizon. You know, Skynet goes online, the machine is sentient, and then we're all fighting in a dystopian future against the Terminator. Like you, you would assume that when the machines won, there would have been a press release, right? Like mm-hmm. there'd be a day, there'd be a Wikipedia page. It'd be like November 20, you know what I mean? But there wasn't. Instead, it just happened. And all of a sudden machine learning outpaced manual management on an exponential scale. And not only is nobody talking about it, most agencies are actually ignoring it. If you listen to the pundits, the people that know, they're dismissing performance max out of hand. And because I am where I am, you know, we manage $70 million in ad spend. I've got 200 clients. I can tell you definitively with the confidence of someone who, who, who just, I, the luxury I have is I just get to see more than anybody else gets to see. There is nothing more powerful than this marketing mechanism. And I'm, dude, I'm not a Google, like my book, which is being released, by the way, everybody go pre-order my book, uh, yes. it's called You Versus Google. 
I don't trust Google. Google doesn't have your best interest at heart. Google's trying to maximize the value of its inventory. It's not trying to help you be successful. So I'm not here just on the Google train, but you can't deny what you see is true. And Performance Max is, it's a category kingmaker. Um, it's, it's actually really exciting. And it's not even like the thing that's coming. It's already here. You know, mm -hmm. it's a year old. Um, and all the great big agencies are ignoring it because they don't like it's reporting or they don't like that it's a black box or they don't like that it steals other campaign types or they don't understand it. The thing about Performance Max, it's really interesting. Media buying used to be a Formula One race car. So you're driving down the road at 200 miles an hour and you're making micro decisions in microseconds and you are truly in control. You can feel the car, you can feel the wheel, you can feel the road, you're driving. Now it's interstellar space travel at the speed of light. And you don't get to drive at the speed of light. You will crash and die. <laughs> you have to serve the machine, right? Like the spaceship drives and then you serve the ship. And that's what Performance Max is. So people that fail at Performance Max, it's because they don't know how it works. They're too used to the old paradigms. Every change you make in Performance Max resets the learning. So you have to run that campaign for six weeks plus your conversion lag. So you have to run that campaign for six weeks, unencumbered, untouched. And here's what's crazy is you think like, oh gosh, six weeks, that's a long time. But at least at the end of six weeks, I'll know. No, you won't. You run it for six weeks so it can learn. And then at six weeks in a day, you will start to see how Performance Max is going to function for you. And then you have to give it the time it needs in order to, to properly conversion optimize. And then when you make changes, you make those changes in three-week sprints. So mm -hmm. we used to make hundreds of changes a day for high spend campaigns. Can't do that anymore. You have to stack your changes and then do an impact report on those changes. Because if you're making the changes at the end of three weeks based off of observations you made three weeks prior, are those changes complementary or contradictory? And do you know enough? Have you paid enough attention to really be able to tell. So it's made it's made it harder, not easier, but it's also zoomed out in a way that from the outside looking in, it's a horrible sales pitch as an agency. You know, you're my client and I'm like, listen, you're going to pay me money, okay? And then I'm going to build this thing and I'm not going to touch it for more than a month. I'm billing you monthly, by the way. And then I'm going to change it one time every three weeks. And I'm going to cross my fingers that the machine knows what it's doing because I have very little influence over targeting governance, creative attribution. Like all the things that you think I do for a living, I don't do it all. I just go and I massage this machine mm -hmm. and that's where we are. And and that's why agencies don't like it, but it's. It's your Geordi basically. What's a Geordi? Geordi from a uh, Star oh, Trek. Oh, from Star Trek, the dude with the visors. Yeah. 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 It's Geordi. <laughs> it's Jarvis. It's dude. It's like the machine won. It won. And there was no, there was no announcement. Like there was no, you know, congressional state of the union. But this would be just about like the campaign settings, not about Bro, like the... You don't define the creative. You don't define the page that the, the customer lands on. Uh, you don't define the targeting. There's something called final URL expansion. So Google says, okay, I want to sell blue light blocking glasses, okay? And the thing about blue light blocking glasses is nobody ever in the history of the world has woken up and thought to themselves, I need blue light blocking glasses. You read an article on eye strain or saw a video on you know headaches or, or you, you have glaucoma or your doctor told you about it or your girlfriend, whatever. There's, there's a catalytic event that made you aware of, that made you problem aware. And then through a series of whatever, search or content exposure, you became solution aware. Google is identifying what they call the path to purchase and they're replicating that path to purchase. So with blue light blocking glasses, Google's going to decide like, okay, 
I know what Jason looks like demographically and psychographically because I have 72 million pro profiling factors on him. I know exactly what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it, where he's going to do it. Because Google isn't a search engine. Google is a data acquisition machine that is also Gmail, also Android, also Google Analytics, also Google Tag Manager, also Google Photos. Google knows what your children look like, where you drive, how fast you drive. Google told a woman she was pregnant before she knew she was pregnant in April 2015 based solely off of her search computation patterns. Mm -hmm. Google knows everything. So they know what's going to take to get you to buy blue light blocking glasses. So when I'm running ads to sell blue light blocking glasses, Google's not going to send you to a buy now page. Because we're, we're operating off of a 500 touch point paradigm and it's full funnel. Instead, they're going to send you to a case study, video, testimonial, you know, whatever, so that you can be touched 500 different times in different variable ways in order to learn why you need this, how to shop for it, what the, you know, et cetera. And then over time, they're going to sell it. So you don't define the creative, Google does. It pulls it off of your site. In most instances, you'll give it headlines, descriptions, images, et cetera, but it'll actually dynamically create the creative on a per avatar basis, based off of who that human is, what adjectives appeal to them, what their favorite color is, all the dynamic profiling factors that we don't have access to and it's in Google's black box. You don't define who you're targeting, Google does. You don't define where they go, Google does. You serve the machine. It's crazy. So these come out in text ads, shopping, the entire display, Google system. So Google is, Google isn't just Google search, of course. Google is discovery, display, GSP, YouTube. Um, the Google Display Network reaches 90% of all internet users on the planet. 65% are, are reached on a daily basis. It's the most prolific thing online. So, and so people think that Google's the search network. It's not that at all. Google is mostly display. The vast majority of the Google inventory, like 99% of the Google inventory is display. This is actually really interesting to think about. If you're looking for a stock to buy, and all I've ever, ever done is lo lose money in the stock market, by the way. So, <laughs> so, so take no his that. advice. <laughs> yeah, don't take my advice. Just short whatever I'm saying. But 90 some odd percent of Google's income for the longest time came from search inventory, okay? Search inventory made up two, three, four, five percent of their inventory, I don't know. 90 some odd percent of their inventory is display. Google just in Performance Max just found a way to unlock their latent inventory, monetize their latent inventory. And they're pushing these ads out. It's no longer inbound. People think Google's an inbound marketing mechanism. It's not. Google goes out says, oh, I know Jason demographically and psychographically. Uh, what is it? He just lost some weight. He was invited to a wedding. He's on the prowl. I'm going to sell this dude pants because I happen <laughs> to know that he's, you know, he's, he's going to be looking Get for a, pants. You know what I mean? Like, like there's, it's just this multivariant thing. He's going to be on a, on a plane, whatever. There's just all of these data points that Google has that people don't even realize that they have. It like, will get really uncomfortable. If you think about Google Analytics, Google Analytics is on 99% of all front-facing websites. The European Union is trying to change that, but especially in North America. Mm -hmm. That means that Google knows everything you've ever done on every website you've ever done it on. Google knows what kind of porn you watch, who's a Narcotics Anonymous, who's about to declare bankruptcy, who's cheating on their spouse. Like Google knows everything. How could they not use that to sell you all the shit? And that's what Performance Max does. When you go into Performance Max and you look at its targeting, it is insane what you can target by. But what's more insane is you give Google polite suggestions for targeting, and then it comes back to you. And in the insights tab, it says, oh, hey, by the way, these 15 targets outperform the targets you gave me by this factor. It actually gives you a number. So one example, we have a client that sells shelf-stable foods, like, you know, for preppers. Mm -hmm. People think the world's going to end. You want a box of food that's going to last for 50 years. We're gonna sell People you who thinks food. the robots won. Yeah, I do. I'm, it's funny. <laughs> I'm full on prepping at this point. Here's what's funny about it is we're selling the shelf stable food and we're going after like, you know, libertarians, Ron Paul fans, people that buy Newsmatic coin, gold, whatever. And Google comes back and says, hey, incidentally, the best, the highest performing audience is boating and sailing enthusiasts. 
to the tune of 35x. And I'm like, holy shit, I never would have thought of that. Of course, you're a boating and sailing enthusiast. You're going to buy shelf-stable food. But we weren't smart enough, or I wasn't smart enough to target that audience. Google was. They found it. They spoon-fed us the audience, and they do that on a recurring basis. Like they, the, the machine does the work, and the media buyer serves the machine. Interesting. Like really deeply interesting and disturbing. Terrifying. Yeah. I mean, does this herald like the oncoming ownership of humanity by an overload empire of computers? Probably, but in the meantime, we can use it to make money. So it's right. fine. Something you said about pants. Um, so if I'm interested in something and maybe I haven't told anybody, they haven't tracked me on my phone or something with voice. <laughs> um, and I go on a search, say, say it is just for a pair of pants. Yeah. Um, they're going to create a whole long funnel over however long they decide it takes you know, a 39 year old male to buy a pair of pants. Right. And they're going to like hit me with those display ads until I just like subconsciously know that it is time to buy those pants and buy, die, or unsubscribe. That's the other thing that really, you know, Google's not just putting ads in front of you. They're putting content in front of you. So That's what I mean. Like with those display ads, it's not just like, Hey, you're going to need some bonobos later. It's like, this gets a little more philosophical, but here's, here's where I, it's happening now, but here's where I see it headed. Um, you'll start seeing there's content on the fair trade acquisition of textile products in South Asia because Google happens to know where you sit philosophically, religiously, politically, however you want to contextualize it. And they realize that you're a good person. You don't want to take advantage of the, the poor indigenous South Asians who are pulling together all the textile materials for pants. And so before they go sell you their gluten-free fair trade granola, you know, bonobos they're going to teach you they're going to teach you this teach you this teach you this and then over time funnel you down into an acquisition so you don't even realize the information that you're being exposed to is actually indoctrination how could I'm, you i might become a prepper <laughs> bro you know what i'm saying like yeah get yourself some ammunition some self-stable foods some potassium iodide <laughs> some water purification tablets like it is nuts it's nuts and and no i can't prove anything that i'm saying mm-hmm Here's how I flip that on you. You, you. you would It would be impossible for you to convince me that it's not built that way. What I can prove is Google has access to all of this data. That's mm -hmm. a fact. So then, then you'd have to say that they're not collecting it and appending it to people. And, and you want to tell me a trillion dollar organization with the smartest minds in the world has just chosen to take this immense power and put it down. No, thank you. This is too much for us. Nobody should have this. Absolutely not. So now let's, we've built that bridge a little bit. We know they have access to the data. We know they're collecting and appending it. Fine. Now you'd have to prove that they're not using it. And I'm seeing it work. I'm seeing it in e-commerce campaigns that are producing ROAS levels that we've never seen before mm -hmm. because Google can go out and they know what you're going to buy before you know you're going to buy it. It's crazy. So we should revolt by just not buying anything. Dude, that's what's funny is I've thought a lot about this. What's how do you how do you combat the computer that can read your mind? Do you do you just do the opposite of what you would do more normally? And then once that becomes an algorithmic truism, truism, doesn't the computer know you're gonna do that too? Mm -hmm. It's like no matter what, like we're just it's just a Geppetto game, man. We're just on the end of these strings. And everything that you think is is because of indoctrination, you know, and that's, that's, this is, this predates technology too. If you want to get super philosophical, like you think like selective exposure, cognitive dissonance, 
herd mentality. There's a reason that if you were born a Hindu, you would die a Hindu. And if you're born a Muslim, you die a Muslim. If you're born a Baptist, you die a Baptist. And God forgive me for tackling religion, but it's it's the most applicable it's the most applicable um, construct. Because when you're taught something as a child, the Jesuits used to say, give me until a child is six. When you're taught something as a child, you are just going to believe that because that's that's what was given to you inside of your echo chamber. And, and up until that point, your, your brain waves are open as though you're somebody who's meditating. Like you were just soaking all of this shit up. And that same level and type of indoctrination is exactly what happens when you're sharing at a screen. When you're mm-hmm. staring at a screen, you open your mind and you open your mind to the things that you're already predisposed to believing and thinking. So, you know, if you're a Republican in the South, Google knows how to sell to you. If you're a latte liberal in the Northeast, Google knows how to sell to you. And it's solution agnostic. It's just trying to sell shit. But that makes you and me and everybody else on the planet open up for manipulation because it knows what pisses you off. It knows what inspires you. It knows what you think. It knows what you believe. It knows what you don't know. Think about that one. Google knows your knowledge graph. It knows where you're ignorant. It Hmm. knows where you have made a logical mistake, error, or fallacy. Like, that's so scary to me. And here they are, and they and they can use it, and they can use it to sell. I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tonight on why to be a prepper. Uh, <laughs> right. So we were going to talk about the psychology of ads. Um, <clears throat> I guess the the robots beat us to it. Then here's here's where I think the control really is for humanity. Google is selling the thing that you created, but like unique selling proposition, for instance, or the materials that you use or the approach that you take or the, 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 the mission of the heart that you have. One of my clients is Yellow Leaf Hammocks. Um, they were on Shark Tank, brilliant, brilliant entrepreneurs, really amazing people. They do this thing where they take women in Thailand that they have these slash and burn jobs that take, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week where they're in horrible danger. Um, their children don't get to go to school. They can barely feed themselves. It's, 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 inhumane to a degree that's difficult for somebody in the West to really understand. And they take these women and they take them out of that situation. They teach them a skilled trade, which is to weave these hammocks, these handmade, beautiful hammocks. And uh, they give them a job and they give them uh, a living wage and a, a fair, you know, money through Friday nine to five and their kids get to go to school. Google can't create that. The entrepreneur did yellow leaf hammocks did. Mm-hmm. And so your control predates marketing it's it's in what is the change that my product or service is going to bring about and that's why i think and i'm not the first one to say this by the way this goes like all the way back to ogilvy and then probably the bible Mm -hmm. people the only reason people buy anything is because they think it's going to elicit a change in them there's the before state and the after state before i have gum my breath stinks after i have gum my breath doesn't stink and i don't even necessarily want clean breath i want the person that i'm attracted to to think i have you know what i mean like you everything you buy you buy to want to listen to change it's the reason that dude the fact that there are people out there driving a mercedes when you could have a hyundai sonata shows you the fickleness of the human mind and i drive a luxury car i'm not i'm not i'm not wealth shaming but like the hyundai sonata has a 10 year 100,000 mile warranty it's 20 grand or however much it is. It'll last for freaking ever. And it is just as comfortable on every level of analysis that actually matters. But there's there's somebody that's going to spend $150,000 on an S class because it elicits a change. And it makes them feel some type of way. And so what you get to do as the entrepreneur, the business owner, the e-commerce store, the whatever, is you get to define that change. It's Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. Well, what's the change? 
And, and that's the change that now, because we have these machine learning mechanisms, you get to have the machine learning mechanism help you test whether or not that actually elicits the reaction you think it's going to elicit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and given where we're going with, you know, some people might call it social awareness or wokeness or whatever. Um, there's so much more social collateral in those types of things than there ever has been. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's where the control is, is it's not in the marketing, it's in the, the the product creation, it's defining what that change looks like, and then helping people, helping people understand it, the articulation of that change, the messaging. Interesting. That it starts before it makes it to the machine, because the machine is going to pump out machine, signals. Machine, so far, the machine can't do that. The machine can't tell you, hey, people are really interested in you know, and it depends, it'd be more multivariant, right? So it'd be like, if you want to sell this phone case, the people that are buying this phone case demographically and psychographically are really interested in um, the rainforest or dolphins or whatever, right? Like you'd have to intuit that based off of what you know about, about your audience. Maybe the machine will get there someday, who knows? But but deciding what it is, deciding what the change is that a, that a purchase or a product would elicit. And it doesn't even have to be in the mission. You know, like a phone case doesn't have to be, you don't have to give money back to the dolphins. Maybe the phone case is a, there's there's something about what a phone case says about you and your ability to uh, be intelligent with your money. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I've got one of those, cause I'm old, I've got a dad case. I've got the wallet case that has the little flap and you know what I mean? Like you don't just buy a phone case. I know that sounds like really weird and really arbitrary, but it's, it's so true. Like nobody just buys anything. You buy things that elicit a change or say something about you or elicit a change in other people. And that's where I think the control is. I, I went off the rails here a little bit, man. Feel free to cut all this up. I don't know if any of it's usable. I think it's awesome. Um, this is not the type of thing most people think about or hear. So it's good, good to have it. Otherwise, it's just uh, talking about Google Ads, which isn't what the plan was. So, yeah, which we can do too. I, you know, now this is better. That's all you want. Well, because it really taps into like in my work as a customer psychology specialist. Like I'm trying to get into the brains of the audience to understand what they do and how they do it. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in from this performance max sort of talk that that change is like you said, predates when it gets to the ad campaign. Mm-hmm. So everything you want to influence in your audience, that's not going, that's going to be in the messaging. It's going to be in the proposition. Right. Rather than just the the campaign structure of, you know, your marketing. I did not know. I've heard about Performance Max from random people talking about it over the last few months. I didn't even notice. I didn't know it was a year old. I thought it was just a couple of months old. It's older than that. They rolled out, they had a beta that we tested, I think in 2019, late 2018, early 2019. It was dog shit. It was the worst <laughs> thing I've ever done in my entire life. I was just like, here we go with Google's automated bid strategies. And and then they and then they took it because they got the feedback from their beta users. Google has a really bad habit, by the way, of making us their QA department. And by us, I mean the collective us. Mm-hmm. So they just release features and they're like, all right, tell us what breaks. Um, but they released performance max years ago and it was just horrible. And so they went back and, and I thought it was dead. And when they rolled it out, it was the biggest surprise and they replaced like smart shopping was the highest performing Google campaign type before performance max. There was, there wasn't even a close second performance max just replaced smart shopping. Google local is the largest campaign type. There are more local campaigns than anything else. Mm-hmm. Performance max just replaced local. 
there are whispers that Google is getting rid of uh, manual bidding. So it's, it's everything is, they're squeezing out everything else and they're just moving to Performance Max. And Performance Max is prioritized over all other campaign types. If you run Google search and you run Performance Max and there's any conflict, Performance Max wins. Google says that exact match search trumps Performance Max, but I've got the data to show you that, that, that that's not true either. That's a bold-faced lie um, or a does, mistake. Does this have anything to do with the, um, what they're doing with the cookies in Google Analytics? Maybe Google has it. So, you know, Facebook died on the vine there because Facebook doesn't have the ability to triangulate a prospect. Facebook is an app. It's a disembodied entity. In order to access Facebook, you have to go through somebody's window. Um, and, and the window through which you're peering, Facebook has no control over. So Facebook doesn't control your, your iPhone. How could they? Google, because Google has so many different data points, Google wasn't impacted by the iOS 14 update the way that Facebook was. Um, so th their ability to see what a prospect is doing is amplified on a scale that I, I don't think is paralleled except maybe by Apple in certain contexts um, because Apple is the the, the origination device. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't think what Google is doing is a response to their inability to see. I think what Google is doing is, it's a multivariate issue here, but it's a response to the knowledge that privacy is a concern and it's not that they're getting more private. It's that they're getting better at hiding what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. So that's number one. So and then it sounds like. Is uh, they, want, they want it to be automated. They don't want me. Why would they want an agency? You know, I'm, I'm in between you and Google telling you what to spend. They, they actually are actively trying to destroy agencies. And I, actually, I think that's overt. It's more or less stated. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you, I have 200 clients, every single one of my clients gets calls from Google representatives every single day. Mm -hmm. which is a conflict of interest at best and a breach of etiquette at worst. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, are you freaking kidding me? Um, I'm sitting here running these campaigns. I'm a professional and you're going to go tell my clients to enable automated adjustments, which are going to kill their campaigns. And I can prove that. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting ecosystem to be in, man. Cause I'm a huge proponent of Google ads as a, as a mechanism, but the way, you know, like there's the saying Fender makes the best guitar. They don't make the best guitar player. Mm -hmm. The Google people have no idea how to run Google ads. And, and when you talk to their more advanced teams, they're the very first ones to admit it. You know, like they, they hate those, those little telemarketer types too, because the advice they give people is abysmal. Yeah. I've talked to them before. Yeah, it was very much a waste of time. Yeah. All right. Um, what are your predictions for next year? Performance max is still blue ocean. I think I'm 24 months ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. um, I think Google display being, a recently tapped resource is going to find us in a position where Google can actually create consumers for products. And so we're, I think we've gone full circle. It used to be, you know, pre 2012 before Facebook had ads in the newsfeed content was king. And if you weren't a content creator, you were, you weren't a marketer and that actually went away and it went away with targeting because targeting allowed us to cheat the content game. You didn't have to create content. If I could go talk to this exact person, because then, then I just have to create enough content to appeal to that one person, which, which decreases my slate on an almost exponential scale. Uh, because performance max is multivariant, because we're going full funnel, because we're operating off a 500 touchpoint paradigm, because everything is going to be value first, we're gonna see a huge swing back towards uh, content creation. And that content creation needs to be, um, it needs to be consistent. 
you can't, you know, I used to be able to create one power page. If I made one power page on a topic, I'd own that industry. Uh, now, because of the way the algorithms work, you have to be creating content and niching down on an ongoing basis in order to be taken seriously. And that seems to be ubiquitous truth. It's true for the search engines, but it's also true for the social media uh, uh, networks. It's mm -hmm. true for the, the editorial networks. Um, it's quality and quantity, which is a first. You know, SEO in the beginning was just quantity. And then there was an overcorrection towards just quality. And now it's like, well, are you producing quality content and are you doing it on a regular basis? So I, I know that you're a well that I can go back to. Um, and I got to be honest, man, just saying this out loud fatigues me. I don't want to be a content <laughs> creator. I hate it. Um, but that's, I think that's where we all are. I think we're going to be in a position where everybody is going to need to create content on the thing that they're doing. And, and what that means is you're going to have to define what you're doing. So all the agency owners out there, they're like, oh, we're a full funnel agency. That's not a business. You are a glorified freelancer who's asking people, what do you want to pay me to do today? Like you have to actually go niche down. What's your product? What's your service? What's your offering? What's your value proposition? Figure out what the hell it is. Because until you have it figured out, you can't create content. You don't know what to create content about. I love your niche, dude. When you're like, oh, I'm, I'm customer psychology. Like that's, now you know what your podcast is about. You know what your email newsletter is about. You know what your social media content's about. You know how to create your content. You know how to become the category king in that space. But for people that are like, I'm a Shopify agency. Really, what does that mean? Does that mean follow-up, CRO, paid media? You know, like what is, what, do you build websites? Like what is, what does that mean to you? And, and people are going to have to get more and more and more and more myopic if they're going to play in this ecosystem. Yeah. When I, I don't, you know, not to just pick on agencies, I think it's true for all businesses. I don't think like dentistry, you ever notice that there's a dentist on literally every major street corner. So if you're mm -hmm. on a major street corner, there's four dentists. And they're all offering free care, cleaning, x-rays, and follow-up. How do you make money in that business? You know what I mean? Residential realty, insurance sales. Like there's this, there's this generic generalist in every industry that's going to die. And they're going to die a very slow and painful death. And then the dentist that, that plants a flag and says, hey, I'm a geriatric dentist where I, I only do implants. Or I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a whitening specialist, whatever. Now you know who to go to when you have whatever problem you have. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm a pediatric dentist. Like, I think every, every industry, every space needs to find their niche. And without niching down, you, you don't know who you are. You don't know who you're speaking to. So, you know, the, like, like the literal definition of content creation is value for an audience, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the value is what you're offering and the audience is who you're speaking to. And the more general and vague that gets, the harder that is to do. It's so true. I, I hear business owners all the time who are like, oh, I help female entrepreneurs grow their business. I'm like, that's not a niche. That's half the world. You know, <laughs> that, that is literally 50% of the human population that you've niched down into. Congratulations to yourself. Like, how about I help people who own house cleaning companies increase the size of their footprint? Like, holy shit, that's a niche. And now you know exactly, like every Minute Maid franchise owner is now your customer and you know exactly how to speak to them, what to say, what problems they're having. And, and dude, now you get to dive deep, deep, deep. You know, you maybe, you know, like, oh, all these, these house cleaning companies have horrible bookkeeping or they have a really hard time with I-9 verification or they've got a tough time with, with travel fees. They don't know how to charge for travel. Like, like you get specific and the value provision there gets very real, gets very tangible very quickly. 
-hmm. So I think that in, in, to circle all the way back to what the question was, where things are going, I think people have to niche down. And I, I vacillate between niche and niche. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> Nobody's decided yet. So I think yeah. the niches. There was um, an ad I saw for some sort of data agency. This was on LinkedIn. And, and it had a, a demographic for toothpaste or toothbrush buyers or something like that. Mm. This was their example on their ad. And it, it was kind of like what you said with the female entrepreneurs, like half the population. So they said like, 49% of toothbrush buyers were men, 30% of them are married or, or single or something. And I was like, man, this is actually just describing the human population. Yeah. And so there's a lot of this kind of like data collection that goes on that gets these really vague, it makes you think you have a lot of information, but it really doesn't because it's just so general. Statistics is just lying with numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Just making shit up. I love that 49% of toothbrush buyers are men. <laughs> it's like, what else would they be? <laughs> or aliens. Yeah. So that's, that's one of my beefs I have with the, just in general, just data. Um, I think it's useful in some cases, but they say numbers can't lie, but people are damn good at lying with numbers. Oh dude. It's yeah. I mean, there's, there are SaaS products out there. This blew me away. I wish I could remember its name so I could just send Vitrol their way. There was a, an analytics and reporting tool that paid media agencies could use that only highlighted positive trends. So if you're my client, I could set up an automated monthly report to go out to you. And if you know cost per click was down, that would be in the report. If click-through rate was up, that would be in the report. But if either of those things were a negative trend, it wouldn't show up in the report. And so every report that you get is nothing but green lines. And you're like, oh my God, my CPCs are down and my CTR is up. And then it's like, well, what if your CPL is down? Because that's the most important number in that little string. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't even know. And yeah, that's, that's as an agency owner, I can tell you, I don't, all the data on the purposes just doesn't matter to us anymore. When I was a young, young man and I first started my agency, I thought that the reporting was the most important piece of it. I need one KPI. You give me one data point. And it and it better be a good data point too. I hate cost per lead. I hate it. I hate I hate ROAS. It's like, what's the lifetime value of your customer? Let's go monitor that. What's the cost per acquisition of a customer if not LTV? Let's go monitor that. What's your average order value? Let's go monitor that. Give me one KPI that I'm going to be held accountable to. And what's nice about that is, is I know how to succeed, but you also know when I'm failing. Mm -hmm. And one of the rules in our agency, and, and I, we stick pretty close to this actually, is, is we fire the client before they fire us. So if you're like, hey, man, I need a cost per acquisition of less than 100 bucks. Okay, cool. That's a goal. I've got my goal. Thank you so much. Two weeks into it, just so you know, we're at 140 and this looks hard. I think at a minimum, I'm going to need 60 days. What did I just do? Manage perfect freaking expectations. And there's nothing you can do but either say, no, that's not going to work for me. Or you and I live inside of the same reality of what is. Mm -hmm. 60 days later, look, dude, I did my best. We got you to 120. That's the best I can do. I totally understand if that's not good enough. You gave me a goal of 100. Who's to say how fair that is? Feel free to take it over yourself. Oh, you're really happy with 120. Interesting. Glad to know it. We'll continue optimizing from here. You know what I mean? But that's one KPI. When you're a young agency owner, the client just wakes up one day and they're like, why are my CPC so high? And then you jump. You're like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. I take full accountability for that. Dear God in heaven, let me help you. You know, now I'm just like, no, I'm not playing that game. I'm not, we, I can't be here every time the wind blows at something and you get to come yell at me because you don't like the way that it looks. 
we're all going to align over one single line, one target. We're going to aim right at the center of it. And if we can make it work great, and if we can't, then we walk away. And the nice thing about not being able to make that work, and this is for agency owners, not for clients, is 99 times out of 100 is because the client has unreasonable expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's a, that's a great client to let go of. And that's a great line in the sand to know when to let them go. You know, oh, I need a 1200% return on ad spend. Okay, let's <laughs> let's give that a shot. You know, that's a client that you probably maybe turn down depending on the industry that they're in. But even if you can't get there, you know exactly when to let them go. You don't keep beating your head against the wall trying to, to comply with these, you know, this crazy, the customer's always right. How could that possibly be true? <laughs> you know, like what asshole wrote that book and why did we all read it? It's just the craziest thing I've ever heard. If the customer was right, they wouldn't need you to run their ads. They'd know how to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. The customer is by definition wrong, given the fact that they came and hired you to do this thing that they don't know how to do. Can you imagine a surgeon? Oh, customer's always right. Which scalpel should we use? You know what I mean? Like, it's just crazy. That's funny. Yeah, I remember talking about that, the the customer's always right bit. I think it was something that came out from some customer service dude in the 70s. I hope he got, dude, I hope he died of syphilis. Like <laughs> what an evil, pernicious human and a horrible, horrible idea to champion. Oh, that's awesome. Um, You're talking about your book, You and Google? You versus Google. You versus Google. Yeah. So what's that's the other lie that I tell? I wrote the introduction to that book that was really written by a whole collection of people at our agency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm putting my name on it because again, I just have a little teeny tiny ego that I like to feed. <laughs> So what's it about? Uh, it's everything that we've learned about Google ads. And it's called the very unauthorized guide to Google ads, because there's what Google tells you to do. And then there's what you should be doing. And those two things are never aligned. Mm-hmm. You know, my favorite example, um, if you're building a Google ad campaign in the geographic targeting settings, Google's going to say that you can target a number of ways. Way number one is people in or interested in this geography. Yeah. And in brackets, in parentheticals, it says recommended. That's Google's recommended setting. Uh, right underneath that is people in or regularly in, which is actually what you want to choose 99 times out of 100, unless you're like a travel agency or something. Because no matter where you are in the world, there are more people interested in that location than are in that location. And if you leave Google's recommended setting on, you're going to get a ton of irrelevant traffic. I had the highest performing real estate investment campaign on the planet for seven years. And one of the only things we did differently was that one setting. And I I was winning in an industry that has so much teeth and so much money and so many smart people. And it's because they trusted Google and I didn't. So the book is all about, we believe in Google ads. We don't believe in their education. And here's everything that we've learned after spending $70 million a year and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients, thousands now. These are, these are the things that we've kind of figured out. So it's like the you know, the hacker's guide to Google ads. Interesting. When is it going to come out? Uh, it's already done. I'm waiting for some gal on Reedsy to finish the formatting and the editing. She's on it. Nice. Any parting thoughts to business owners? Fail forward. I've got this theory. I, the next book I want to write is on failing. And I think there's three ways to fail. The first way to fail is the hand on the stove way where you touch the stove. It's hot. You never do that again. That's how children fail sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a horrible way to fail because everything that you learned, you don't get to, you don't get to use. The second way to fail is like the, 
the ADD way, which is like, oh, I tried to cross here and it didn't work. So I'm going to start over and I'm going to try to fly over that. And then that didn't work. And I'm going to start over and I'm going to try to bike over that way. And, and that doesn't help you because even though you keep trying, you keep paying the same asshole tax, you know, the dummy tax. Mm-hmm. And then the third way to fail is, is you fail 90%, but the 10% that succeeded, you actually keep. And that's how you build your bridge. And so instead of never coming back or continue to try to build your bridge from a different direction or a different location or different materials, you capitalize on what did work within that failure. And uh, all the entrepreneurial successes I've seen, it's crazy, dude, because you probably run into this too. There's a ton of people that make way more money than me or have done way more than I have, and they're not as smart as I am. Mm-hmm. And it's frustrating for all of us to see that. And and the thing that I think they have on all of us is that slow, plodding, intentional way of failing. They fail forward to steal from John C. Maxwell. So maybe I don't need to write that book. But that's that's my <laughs> closing thought. I like it. Um, Cosm, that was awesome. Appreciate you having me, man. Thanks, Jason. Okay, and there it is the start of a conversation that will continue as machine learning becomes more and more commonplace. And don't forget to go to Substack and subscribe to the Real Heroes of E-Commerce, and we will see you next week.